Outliers in Education is brought to you by CEE, the Center for Educational Effectiveness. Better data, better decisions, better schools. To find out more, visit effectiveness.org. Everyone agrees that schools should focus on students and learning, but the most successful schools don't stop there. The real outliers recognize that the quality of the relationships they maintain with their students' families and their communities at large can play a role in how well their students do. So how do school leaders go about building those relationships, especially when there might be language, cultural, or economic barriers to doing so? Well, that's what we're exploring today on Outliers in Education. That's what we're all about, in letting our kids be successful. If you want to achieve something, then surround yourself with the people you want to become. Because kids are kids in small districts, rural districts, urban. Kids are kids. Greetings and welcome to episode number four of Outliers in Education from CEE, the Center for Educational Effectiveness. Today, we got a whole host of Eric's for you, starting with me, Eric Price. Then, of course, there's my valiant co-host, Mr. Eric Bowles. Bowles, what's the word? Hey, EP, the word for the day, as is so often the case in education, is not a word, but it's an acronym. I'm talking about FACE, F-A-C-E, which stands in for Family and Community Engagement. That's right, Family and Community Engagement, which brings me to our third Eric of the day, here to help us begin to understand the value of connecting that larger web of relationships, the challenges of doing so, and some of the creative approaches that can really work. We have with us Eric number three, Superintendent Eric Dreesen from Brewster, Washington, home of the Brewster Bears. Welcome, Eric. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. We got a lot of Eric's here, so uh, we've got a solution for that one. I'm going to go with EP, and then we're going to call my partner in crime, Bulls, and then you will be the legitimate Eric for this one. Are you okay with that today? That sounds great. Well, like so many of our guests on this podcast, you, Eric, are coming from a school district that's been identified as an outlier in a recent study that pinpointed Washington schools that have been outperforming all the rest and doing it for quite some time. Before we dive into the importance of family and community engagement, Eric, can you just give us a little bit of background on Brewster School District? You bet. Uh, Brewster's a small rural community on the Columbia River at the foothills of the Cascades. So it's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful place, almost right in the middle uh, of the state. Um, it's uh, agricultural in terms of we have mostly orchards, cherries and apples primarily, a lot of outdoor recreation. We have uh, a community of 90% Hispanic and 90% uh, free and reduced lunch. Well, wow, thanks for that, Eric. And as we mentioned, today we're talking about family and community engagement. So tell us why, from your perspective, uh, we need to engage with families as school officials and, and what difference does it make? Does it help students achieve? To me, that question is kind of an obvious question. Um, it helps in a, in a number of ways. Engaging parents is also getting support for schools, parents helping kids at school, uh, the communication between home and school, and then supporting the school in general, whether it be levies or things like that. So that, that relationship, from my point of view, is probably one of the most important ones. I know you're a longtime Brewsterite. But kind of from an appropriate beginning, from where it was to where you are today in family and community engagement, 
kind of what has happened in, you know, from the very beginning to now? Uh, I guess to, to start with, when I, when I first became the superintendent, one of the first things I wanted to do was um, get the community to know me. And, and I'm in a, in a slightly unique situation. First of all, we're a small rural community, and that can be both good and bad. But I also graduated from Brewster. So um, I went away and then came back. So that, that also is, is a good thing and a bad thing, uh, or could be. But when I first was uh, hired for the job as superintendent, um, I went out and I introduced myself to all the businesses because I wanted them to know who I was. And I felt like that every person I introduced myself to would hopefully become a partner of some kind with the school and with the kids. I belonged to all of the community clubs. I uh, went to the local coffee shops where the farmers showed up for breakfast and drank coffee. And uh, we, I went to the labor camps uh, and the, the shed cafeterias. I, we also hosted board meetings in the different voting districts. So we took the board meeting out there to the community, hoping getting those the constituents to come in and to, to work with us. So all of that initial startup uh, really was laying the groundwork. One of the, the other things I did was talk to the teachers. I interviewed every staff member that worked for the Brewster School District and asked them three questions. I call it stop, start, and continue. What would you um, stop doing if you had the magic wand? What would you start doing and what would you continue doing? So I was able to really build uh, an idea of where the district was headed. So Eric, let me just back up. Just did you, when you were talking about talking to businesses, did you like go down the street and just go down and knock on doors? I mean, what did that look like? Yeah, literally. <laughs> yeah. And then, and when you talked about all of the people that you were talking about with, was it just teachers? Or are you talking about classifieds and custodians? And yeah, when I met with the staff, I met with everybody, bus drivers, uh, cooks. Wow. The whole nine yards. But but that, again, is one of the advantages of a small school district, too, because I could walk down Main Street and pop my head in into the businesses. And sometimes it was difficult because they were Spanish-speaking businesses, and I'm not a fluent Spanish speaker. So that caused some, some you know, difficulty to begin with. And, um, and then, of course, my staff, I have about 160 staff members, so, so I was able to get to all of them. So that's, you know, some of the advantages. And then from, from that base, then you just continued to develop that uh, family connection and the community connection? So, yeah, it's, it was all trial and error. Developing that relationship also included other kinds of things. For example, uh, one of the things in trying to get the families involved because of our Hispanic culture, and, and many of them came straight from Mexico, their schools in Mexico have uniforms. And at a time, we were going through a little bit of gang issues and things like that. And so our families were like, we need uniforms, man. <laughs> <laughs> and so they were, they were pretty adamant about it. And so uh, we went through a whole process and a study. And, and we don't have a uniform, but we have a dress code. And it's a dress code that none of the other schools in our area have. And we really implement it for a couple of reasons to kind of help solve the little gang issue we had going there. But we always, you know, the old saying, dress for success. And so when our kids go out 
um, they, they always look nice, uh, no holes in their clothes. And so it's pretty simple, but, but our kids stood apart a little bit. In fact, it was a safety issue and we've been able to track down, oh, close to a half a dozen different situations where kids come off the street into our building and because they were dressed different, we knew they didn't belong. Right. Oh, that's genius. So, Eric, one of the things I'm curious about when you talk about really building bridges and relationships across two cultures, um, can you illustrate what what are some of those difficulties on the front end and what have been some real wins for you as you've uh, ministered to the needs of a predominantly Hispanic culture and community? You know, actually, one of the most difficult things is as a culture, uh, they're very trusting and respectful of education. They're almost like, you know what's best, we'll support you. And so drawing families in became difficult. And so we we spend a lot of time and continue to do so, creating ways um, for parents to come in. And, uh, uh, you know, we have a PAC, a parent advisory committee, kind of goes along with our migrant program. But um, it's very active, and we use it as kind of a PTA, if you will. So we cover a lot of different topics during that. We also offer ESL classes, as been mentioned before. One of the things that we started doing was offering citizenship classes. And that's been uh, a real popular activity. And then we have a big graduation ceremony at the end for the families, you know, we, we do parent nights where they come in and learn about the curriculum or we offer love and logic classes or um, we do parent lunches, student led conferences. A couple of things we've done. Again, just these are just things that like trying to be creative, bring people in. And and actually, the, the, the more variety you have, I think the better it is because parents are more interested in some of the activities than others. So by doing a variety of them, you get a variety of parents. Another one we did was something we called hosts. And it's uh, help one student to succeed. And what it is, is a mentoring program. And so we would get adults primarily. We were out there trying to bring in senior citizens, for example, and businesses and it was a program where uh, those folks would come in and work one-on-one with kids. And, and most of it was just reading. Most of it was just interacting. We, we didn't expect senior citizens to be teaching kids how to read necessarily, but they were listening. And we set them up for ways to ask questions, comprehensive questions and some like things like that. So we had a large number of senior citizens coming into the building. And then businesses and we ran it four days a week, and then businesses would supply us four different people, one person for each day of the week. So they were sponsoring through their business these kids that we had in our programs. Let's jump back into the citizenship piece for just a second. Um, I can imagine that helping families working primarily in agriculture obtain citizenship uh, is probably a moving endeavor, both for the family and for all who participate. Do you have any stories or highlights you could share from those experiences? The real stories are around those families um, that come, you know, two nights a week for like 16 weeks uh, because they have to answer a number of questions. There's a test to become a citizen. So we would bring in staff to meet with parents so that they could practice answering those questions. And to hear those stories one-on-one, you know, was almost... um, had more, well, I don't, I won't say more, but it, it had a large influence on our staff just to see those parents doing that. 
But the culmination is really the, the icing on the cake. When, when you have 50 uh, individuals sitting in our large gym that's literally packed out with American flags and people dressed to the hilt as they do the swearing in, the swearing in ceremony for citizenship. I mean, even right now, just talking about it gives me chills because the, the kids and the, and the families are so proud. And so, you know, it's, it's literally, it's an emotional experience. So, Eric, I've heard you talk about that citizenship, that citizenship piece before. Has that uh, changed some of the voting uh, dynamics and representation in your district? Yeah. So, um, one of the things is, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we're 90 percent Hispanic. And so, um, again, those people are so respectful and trusting and they didn't realize a lot of them um, what what kind of a power they have in the ability to vote. And so as we started those citizenship classes, then voting became more at a higher awareness level for them. Like, oh, yeah, I can go vote. I can make a difference. I can have my say. So we ran a bond about four or five years ago. And, um, you know, again, 90% free and reduced lunch. Running a bond's a tough deal around here. So, but, but what won that election was the Hispanic vote because they were on board with it and they exercised their right to vote. Well, that must be a huge, huge change for you. So there, there are a lot of us that are in uh, educational leadership that really, uh, we have difficulty bringing in families and communities. What were some of the big challenges that you faced? If you could say, ah, these were our two biggest, because you've talked about a couple of them. Are there any others that were like, ah, this was really hard for us to get over? There was two, probably. I've mentioned one already. Just the fact that parents were so respectful, they didn't feel like coming to school was really their place. Right. Because they didn't know, you know, they didn't know about education. Many of our parents are are not highly educated themselves. It's getting better, right? We're second and third generation for the most part moving, but but that was part of it. They just they just didn't feel like that it was their place to come in. So they just trusted you to make those decisions, right? And they didn't feel like they had anything to offer. So bringing them in in these in social settings and some of the things I've mentioned before help them feel more comfortable. Now begin to express their ideas and now, you know, the voting thing. So like I said earlier, it's it's not one thing. I, I, I couldn't just like name one thing that's made a difference. It's really been all of them. But the second thing is the language. You know, hiring is the most important thing. Hiring those bilingual people has made a huge difference. And so the majority of our parapros are bilingual, and not only that, they're local. Um, we're getting better at, at hiring teachers, bilingual, bicultural. But in our rural area, the biggest barrier there is applications. I've got a math job open right now, and I've got one one application. And do they probably know the kids in the school, those those folks? Yeah. So the ability to hire these local people, they know the kids, the families, the needs, um, which again is pros and cons, but it works out really well for the it's more a lot more positive than than negative. And so they, they know what's going on. They're they're really the pulse 
on the, the culture and what's going on with families that really allows us to meet those needs for kids and families. And Eric, going to switch gears a little bit here. Obviously, you've been at this a long time. Wait a minute. Uh, wait a minute. Now, what gives that <laughs> off? I'm, I'm hoping it's well, not just a- because we're looking at each other here. I mean, that could be taken a couple of ways there, both. So. <laughs> That, that, that's a great point. This, this is basically an audio bit, so people can't see our ages. I, I shouldn't have presupposed. Um, so tell us about, when you've been implementing something over time, we have the opportunity to go back and redo some things. Uh, we make missteps. Uh, we learn lessons. What are some of those lessons learned as you've scaled out your parent community involvement? Oh, gosh. I think the biggest, the biggest thing is self-evaluation of the activities that you're trying to offer. It's, it's that critical analysis of your own thinking and your own practices. Because honestly, I, I, I can't say I'm sorry that I tried any of the things we tried. Um, I feel like each one of those offered a little something to somebody. Some offered, you know, a bigger bang for the buck. So I think probably the only way I can answer that is to say that every time we do something, we go back and we adjust. We monitor and adjust so that when we go out and do it again, we're better at it. Like, for example, the Back to the Future visitations. You know, that thing was a cluster the first time we did it. <laughs> we, we didn't plan for the number of people and we didn't plan for the day and and, you know, we didn't have people moving in, in clean flows and, you know, seeing things like that. So, um, you know, and like I said, we did it for a week. And, you know, the people that came Monday were probably shaking their head when they walked out. But the key people that came on Friday thought it was the greatest thing ever, you know, just because <laughs> we were able to monitor and adjust. So, you know, if 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 I was going to make a suggestion, I would say that uh, there is no wrong answer for trying to connect with the community and parents. It's just for your, every community is going to be a little different. These things work for our community and our, our little rural community and our parents. And again, we found some things that were better in, in terms of bringing people in than others. And I think that's true for everybody. I think the only, the only mistake you make is not reaching out and trying those things. Uh, what, what were some things, if you could point to a couple, you're like, man, we hit home runs on this. We didn't expect it. Or wow, we got we got more bang for a buck on this than uh, other uh, pieces. Well, I, I have to go back to the host program. That was a biggie. Um, you know, and doing, doing the research on the voting patterns and things like that, you know, it was like 75% of our voters were over 60 it's probably the same in other communities too. So they obviously, we needed to reach out to those people and form relationships. And, you know, I, I, I attended senior lunch, you know, once a week for years, just because mainly it was fun. It was fun just to go see those people and talk to them and listen to them. And they appreciated it. And, but just building those relationships so they could see what school was like. That was, that was a big deal. I think that really helped. Um, you know, our parent lunches, our student-led conferences are also, we get 100% of our parents to come in for, for student. Now, granted, we only have 950 kids in the district, but we get 100%. How do you do that? How do you get 100%? It's, it, well, it's persistence, right? I mean, we schedule them, 
And we always schedule them at like from noon to eight o'clock at night, trying to work around work schedules. We get a hold of businesses. We have some large employers. So we get a hold of them and say, hey, can you let some of these people's off for an hour or something to come in for a conference? They're always accommodating for that kind of stuff. Um, and so we try to work around their schedule, but then we're persistent. So schedules don't always line up, but the following week we're scheduling. Hey, can you come in? We missed you at conferences. Can we? So it might take, you know, an extra week to get everybody in there. Um, but we literally get everybody in there. And, you know, that's, again, that's a relationship building because you're nagging on them, some of them. You know, you need to come in here and hear what your kid has to say about what he's learning. That, right. That's an awareness level. Like, okay, school's right. important. I need to go in there and find out. So that helps build those relationships as well. Um, you know, one of the other things we do, and I don't know that this is for every school in terms of community uh, relationship building, is uh, we we have the philosophy that our facility is the community's facility. And it is, right? I mean, nobody can argue that. But in saying that, we try to put our our words into actions, and we and we don't charge anything for the community to use our building. In fact, we bend over backwards, and and for example, we've had funerals and so on in our buildings. We supply the custodian and the and the food service people, and we pay for it. And um, we don't charge community activities like they might have a men's basketball or community basketball or whatever the case is. Um, we don't we don't charge anything unless, of course, they break something. But um, <laughs> then, we, then we negotiate on that. <laughs> but um, everything is just kind of like we're all in the same community. This is yours. Exactly. Yep. 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 And so, you know, the community sees that and they appreciate it. And and in reality, you know, it's true. It, it was really a way just to get people into school because we feel like if we can get them in, then they're going to see really what's going on. Yeah, and be yeah. more comfortable to come in on the during hours, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, Eric, you've been at this a long time. I want to make sure I put my foot in my mouth again here as uh, <laughs> I ask this question. <laughs> what What advice would you have to a new school system leader or a new school leader who's kind of struggling to get their head around parent community involvement? What are some What are some things you would tell them in a in a couple of minutes? Couple of pearls of wisdom. But I think the the first thing, if you're going to be a even a building leader, but a district leader, is is you got to find out where you're at. Where are you starting? And so interviewing those staff was was a big deal for me, and that helped me build uh, a, a plan. Um, and then again, going to businesses or however however that works for you in in those school districts. For instance, I had uh, I had what I called BSD communicators. So I went on the email and the web page and I said, hey, anybody who wants to be a part of conversations that go on with schools, send me your email. And so I made this big, long email list so that every time something was going on with school, newsletters, uh, questions, uh, you know, mini surveys, whatever, I just, boom, I shot it out to, to that group and, and got their feedback on stuff. Um, you know, bringing the parents in, we, so... You know, we offered meals. We try to offer meals, you know, and, and every time we do something with parents, we try to offer meals. And if possible, we try to have kids perform, right? Because parents are showing up if their kids performing. <laughs> so we would do that for everything. We even did it at school board meetings, just so somebody would show up to a school board meeting. Um, but again, the, the whole purpose behind that is to try to get a feel for the community. 
and the parents. And so, you know, when we did those parent things, we always gave them little exit tickets or surveys if it was about a certain thing. Um, so uh, a, a person might not be able to go out and do their businesses, but they can build an email uh, list that uh, allows allows people to get those that feedback. So any way you can get feedback from staff and any way you can get feedback from parents, number two, and then third would be, you know, your business community and your voting constituents, right? Because like it or not, we all have to go out there and run levies and things like that. So it's important to kind of hear from them as well. Well, well go, going back to some of those community pieces, I remember you kind of telling me a story about when you were looking at passing some levies. Could you kind of go through that process a little bit about what yeah, happened? Yeah. Yeah. So I think this was uh, a, a process of evolving too. So what we're now at is a relationship with our community and our parents where when we go out and ask for a levy, yeah, there's still the people that are like, taxes, no go. And I get that part too, you know. Um, but in our last levy, really all we did was offer out uh, Brewster School District, Brewster Bears support memorabilia, like signs. Uh, we support Brewster School District or uh, Brewster Bear Proud. And we had little yard signs and we had some flags and, and then we had the kids and we had some other things, you know, but it was all about being proud of the community you live in and the school district that you're a part of. That's all this stuff was. And then we went to the businesses and said, Hey, are you interested in putting up one of these things? So you didn't get into the weeds of specifics. It was just oh, about, it yeah. was so cool. And, and, and so then when you walk around town or drive around town, because we went everywhere. I mean, that was the one thing the staff did. I said, staff, let's go out and see if people will yeah. put one of these things in their yard yeah. that they support the school and the community. And they were all over that. That's awesome. The, the staff was excited about it. So then when you drove around, you saw all these signs and they are in businesses and they're still up. And that levy was Three years ago, and and you and previously, you really hadn't seen that kind of uh, participation at all when you were looking at passing levies. Is that well? You know, that's an interesting question. So when you talk about you know the mistakes you make, maybe I should have done this five years ago. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, you know, right. um, but I think those relationships had to be built first. That trusting relationship, so that people could say, "Yeah, I support what's going on down there for our kids or that part of the community." And and it was really a rallying event more than a levy event. I think that's what I really liked about it. That's amazing. It. That That's amazing. Which, which speaks to you really developing that identity, that cultural identity of the school. That's, that's fantastic. Holy smokes, Eric. Thank you very much. Um, that's a ton of information. Bowles, what are your big takeaways after all of those bad boys? Gosh, I'm supposed to limit it to two or three, and I'm going to do my best. Uh, I think everybody's going to need to listen to this two or three times to pull kind of all the things out of it. Big themes, school is a welcoming environment for every single constituent. So when we talk about family and community engagement, uh, clearly Brewster fires on every single cylinder. Um, as with all of our outlier schools, what we're learning over and over again, it's the path to wealth is overnight success, just 25 years in the making. So you start small, you persist, you keep you keep moving forward. And this is a theme that we just hear so strongly, I think, across the board. Um, I got chills as well when I when I thought about staff tutoring families, family members who are working towards citizenship yeah. and just 
the the kind of cross cultural understanding that must create. Uh, what, what a beautiful what a beautiful moment. My own belief around family and community engagement as a retired educator is great schools create value for families and communities, create reasons for wanting to be there. Good schools tell people what to attend. So, Eric. In spite of working with the other two Eric's, uh, <laughs> you absolutely added value to our podcast in a way that we clearly couldn't have done without you. Uh, kudos. Well, we'd like to thank our guest, Superintendent Eric Dreesen from the Brewster School District for joining thank us you. today. Thank you very much, Eric. And we hope you'll continue to join us as we talk shop with some of Washington's top educators right here on Outliers in Education. And remember, everybody, be awesome today. Hey, if you know an educator out there who's making a real difference, we want to hear about him. Drop us a line at outliers at effectiveness.org. Or you can always find out more by visiting the Center for Educational Effectiveness online at effectiveness.org. Until next time, this has been Outliers in Education. If you'd like to find out how to gather the data you need to help drive positive change in your school or district, take a moment to visit CEE, the Center for Educational Effectiveness, at effectiveness.org. Better data, better decisions, better schools. Effectiveness.org.